Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. My co-host is Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. I'm doing quite well. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Just how you welcoming. Your, sorry. Yeah. How are you enjoying your summer so far? Uh, you know, I'm enjoying it a whole lot. I took a full two-week vacation. I went camping with my family in a camper. We went, uh, did a big circle down through BC and um, back up through Alberta. And we had no disasters. We didn't encounter any wildfire smoke. It was just lovely. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for asking. How about you? How's your summer going so far? So far, so good. Um, Friday, we're going to BC for a family reunion. And then that's only a, a, the weekend. And then we're staying the rest of the week camping in, in shoe swap. We thought we were going to have a pop-up camper, the one we borrowed last year. But um, my friends told me that the, we totally could use it and they weren't using it that week of August. And then once, like literally after we booked the site for us to camp, they're like, oh, sorry, we're using it that week. And I was like, great. Right, so we're well, tenting, we're just tenting on this RV mm, site and that's fine. Mm, it's not a cement mm, pad. It's like a gravel pad, but you know, it's, it's fine. Um, we're excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun and the weather's supposed to be awesome. So. Fantastic. Well, I wish you much camping joy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're also joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James LTD. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Hi, Evan. I'm doing great. I am jealous of... Evan's new outfit. I think we all feel good when we've got a new good looking set of fabric on. <laughs> Evan, uh, is this a French line that you purchased? It sounded a little French when you were talking about it earlier. Yeah. Well, the name is certainly French, but they're, uh, the French might be offended by it. <laughs> um, so I've just, I literally, this just came in the mail, literally like 15 minutes before we started filming. And so I pulled out of the package and I was trying it on. Uh, this is it's from a, I don't want to give them free advertising with you know, some of our viewers, but this is from a company down in California who uses a proprietary fabric. That's not wool. And they're just basically like an off the rack type place, but their suits are pretty cheap. So I thought, now oh, let's try it out and see what they're like. And um, looking pretty good with the measurements that I use. It's like it's 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 already pretty close, so it doesn't look like the tailoring is going to be like crazy. So um, it came as advertised, and I'm happy. And it's a different color, and I don't usually do three pieces, but this one, this only option was a three piece, so I got the vest in there too, and it was pretty cheap. So we'll see once I get it all tailored up. We'll see how cheap it actually was, but. Okay, and maybe listeners, you can comment whether you can hear the difference in Evan's outfit <laughs> during today's podcast. Maybe well, some a can, little bit of extra swagger, confidence. They can, <laughs> they can also look on the YouTube. You can see my suit jacket that I wore today in the background. It's a different color. It's oh. blue. This is burgundy or wine or something. So it might look okay together. We'll see. But it's a full suit. And it came with a free tuxedo. So. 
Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. There you go. go. (laughs) Uh, Well, without further delay, I am very excited to welcome back today's guest. Um, We've got Sarah Dargetts from Latitude Family Law here today. Sarah, you've been our guest before speaking about family violence. So welcome back. How are you doing today? Hi, thanks for having me back. I am looking forward to chatting again. Um, I'm doing well. Enjoying the summer, enjoying the weather. I I also did some camping earlier this season, and so I'm tooting around BC and um, just I just love I love summertime in Edmonton and and surrounding areas. So I'm just drinking it in. Yeah, it really can't be beat. Hey, yeah, yeah, the Edmonton summer it's pretty awesome. It makes up for that Edmonton winter, which is not pretty awesome, but <laughs> we survive. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to point right. out that Canadian winter in general sucks. So yes. I've had I have had like many many Canadian winters in Vancouver and Vancouver Island, a place that people probably think have really nice winters. They're not. They're actually terrible. <laughs> so um, Canada winters they're just too long and too cold. Mm-hmm. Unless you ski, that's fun. It's fun to get out there in it and do some stuff, skate, you know, all those fun things. Anyway, we're not going to think about that right now because that's a few months away. So, Not at minus 30, Heather. It's not fun to go skiing at minus 30. That's very unpleasant. (laughs) Now, I might not have been paying attention, but did you already introduce Kim as our special guest and say all the stuff? Okay. I'm trying to stay quiet over here because I like the cold and darkness and I was <laughs> here. So I have heated socks and all of these things to make the winter fun. So I, I, I disagree with everything you've said about winter. I'm, I'm into it. It's my favorite season. Uh, see, <laughs> it's a matter That's of perspective. Awesome. <laughs> you are in the right place, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> I like working. I like the darkness and the cold. I am, I found my home. I'm never leaving. <laughs> Edmonton is the place for Kim. Hey, yeah. for sure. And, like if anyone thinks she's being ironic, like, I just want you to understand she's not, <laughs> she's being deadly serious right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, folks, I think we have Sarah here today to talk to us um, about self-represented litigants. So, folks who are in the court system um, and don't have lawyers. So, this is, I think, a really um, important topic, and I think she's got a whole bunch of great tips for um, for folks who are representing themselves. So, Sarah, maybe I'll hand it over to you to introduce your topic and get started. Sure. Yeah. So I just wanted to generally talk a bit about uh, self-reps and and I'm coming here as a lawyer, as a family law lawyer, uh, someone who goes to court on occasion, but tries to stay out of court a lot of the time and resolve family problems outside of court as well. Um, and so I'm going to talk a bit about the experience of having a self-rep on the other side of a file and what that kind of looks like. But then also hopefully from that perspective, um, give some tips uh, that people who may find themselves uh, as self-represented uh, litigants uh, that they can use to, you know, ho- hopefully make the process go a little bit better. So, um, and I'm definitely going to be um, pointing to some resources because uh, there are a lot of uh, helpful resources out there and by no means am, am I the authority on it. There are other people who are the authority on it uh, and they've got some great resources that uh, people who are self-represented can can uh, check out. Um, so, I just wanted to touch 
base, first of all, about terminology. So, um, as you said, Heather, self-represented litigants usually refers to people who are, are without a lawyer in the court process. We also can use it more broadly as well for just people who are dealing with a legal issue um, and are don't have a lawyer helping them with that legal issue. Uh, so we often shorten it to self-rep. Um, we also sometimes use the term unrepresented uh, or SRL for self-represented litigant. Uh, in the U.S., where they seem to really still love Latin, um, they often call uh, self-reps pro se litigants. Mm -hmm. So P-R-O-S-E, pro se. So you might hear that or see that in some of the resources, pro se litigants. Um, but we've tried to kind of get rid of a lot of our Latin, which I think is really helpful to self-reps uh, that we're trying to get rid of some of that jargon uh, and make it easier to understand for everybody. Um, we know that self-reps in the court system are on the rise. Uh, we see a lot more. There's a really comprehensive study that was done in 2011, 2013. So that's a decade ago. So we don't have, I, I wasn't able to find some really good current stats. Um, but what I could find is that the numbers are constantly on the rise. Uh, courts, judges, lawyers are seeing more and more self-reps all the time. Um, it can also be hard to get numbers for processes that are outside of court. So um, if you're looking at self-reps in mediation or uh, participating in just a settlement discussion, um, those might be harder to find stats on that. Um, I did find one statistic that said on, in one study from 2001, 80% of litigants in Toronto were self-represented. That's wild to me. And I didn't have the context for that stat, but um, and so I don't know if that's all levels of court or if that's just initial levels of court, but that's that's wild. And that was from a from a fairly reliable source. So we know that a lot of people are going going at it alone. Um, as lawyers, I think we all have some horror stories about files where there was a self rep on the other side. Um, Self-reps can make a file really difficult. It can make it really difficult to get to resolution. Um, especially like there are ones and this is certainly not universal, but there definitely are some self-reps who are dealing with mental health problems or personality problems. And those also, of course, can be really hard to resolve those files. Um, we see more than more court appearances than would otherwise be necessary, a higher cost for our clients. And so a lot of times when you bring up self-reps with lawyers, we think automatically about those horror stories and have a pretty negative view of, of some of those folks. Um, I know like self-reps have threatened me with like personal litigation. They threatened to report me to the law society. Um, they've accused me of ethical behavior. I've been told I'm going to hell by a self-rep, which mm. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I suppose he could have told me that on the street, I suppose as well. Um, but I don't know if any of any of the other lawyers have any interesting stories about self-reps that you want to share, or maybe you want to keep those private on your files. Well, certainly some spicy emails, all caps, some name calling, some language. Um, I think sometimes it's like um, just no cooperation either or like really sensing that I'm the enemy in this situation and then treating me as such, which is kind of understandable maybe when you're feeling uh, like in a threatened or vulnerable position. But kind of generally that when it's bad. Um, I've had some good experiences as well, but how about you, Evan? Well, I haven't had any, like, at least not that I can remember off the top of my head where they've been like really brutally inappropriate, but I think the, the reason you guys can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think the reason that 
lawyers tend to groan when it's a self-represented litigant on the other side of a file, someone without a lawyer, is because it puts us in a difficult spot. A lot of the, a lot of the time, like we are giving our clients recommendations and advice based on what's reasonable because of what we know about the law and the facts of the situation. And when a lawyer's on the other side, not always, but usually that really helps you get to a, a simple and easy resolution. If you're being super reasonable and there's a good lawyer on the other side, they're going to tell their client, Hey, they're being super reasonable. Um, you should agree, whatever, on whatever the issue might be. With a self-represented litigant, there's automatically distrust. Tends to be, again, um, where they, they assume you're trying to get one over on them. They don't really understand what our code of conduct says about that type of behavior. And even though our code of conduct says that, there certainly are lawyers out there who will behave unethically, which makes it more difficult for the rest of us. Um, and so... It's more of a like, oh boy, we're in for a little bit more of a long haul. And so, and I don't want to go too far down the garden path here because I don't, I don't, you know, Sarah might, might be getting into more details about like this, but I think one strategy that I try to do is try to get it into court to us, to an ADR or alternative dispute resolution process hosted by the court as soon as possible. So that could be like a judicial dispute resolution at the lower court level or, um, what we call an early intervention case conference at King's bench level, which they're essentially the same thing. It's kind of like a mediation process where the judge acts as a mediator. Those can be good because then they hear from a judge telling them if we were being super reasonable and, mm -hmm. and that can be helpful. But other, if you don't have that, it can just be a slog because you're like, trying to explain that what you're saying is reasonable and they don't, tend to listen because you're not their lawyer. And anyways, so that's, yeah. I, I don't have like a specific story of how it's been terrible or anything like that, but it's kind of a general, like it makes it more difficult to get things done. Yeah. And I like getting things done. Yeah. And maybe to branch off a little bit off of that, I found a difficulty in the past as well in like, I think lawyers, contrary to maybe the public perception, tend to want to be helper folks. Um, and I think that it's difficult sometimes um, to see uh, another person struggling to understand or to um, see reasonableness um, without crossing that line of remaining a strong advocate for your own client, not providing legal advice. Um, and those kinds of things too. So I found that challenging in the past, even if it's not been like, you know, a personality type or anything that's, that's challenging um, or conflictual that's going on at that level. But Okay, Sarah, yeah. back to you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, we all, yeah, it's, it definitely often feels like, oh, you know that there's going to be a self-rep that we often have that, that heavy side because we've often had bad experiences. That being said, I've also had really good experiences with self-reps. I've had files and they, they just don't stick out of my memory because they're not remarkable. They were the good files where <laughs> we settled things easily. We um, came to agreements. People were level-headed. People were able to express themselves um, and things went quite easily. Um, I've also had occasion to help people who are self-represented, but support them along uh, on a limited scope or in a coaching capacity. And so then I've been able to watch my own client be self-represented and see how they 
conduct themselves. And I've been really impressed with some of my coaching clients who have done a really excellent job and have been really competent. Um, there are other ones who have struggled. And that's where then we talk about if I can continue to help them or I, maybe I need to help them more. Maybe I need to take over and represent them in, a, in the full capacity. So um, one of the things that just like with most things in life, things operate on a spectrum and there's a number of different reasons for why people may be self-represented. And so oftentimes in the, in the research or, or when we talk about self-reps, there's a distinction that's made between people who are self-represented um, involuntarily versus people who are voluntarily self-represented. So there are a lot of people who would rather have a lawyer but they just don't for a number of reasons. Um, one of the most common reasons people don't have lawyers is because we're expensive. We know that we, we cost a lot of money and for a lot of people, there just isn't money in the budget either because they don't have the income or because their income is going to other things, whether it's their families or debt repayment or whatever it might be. They just do not have the extra dollars to, to pay a lawyer. Um, one stat I found was that about 50% of self-represented litigants made less than $30,000 a year. So that was, mm. you would think that that would be a big reason why they're self-represented is just mm. because they're low income. Now, um, in Alberta, we have legal aid. There's legal aid programs across the country. Um, in Alberta, a single person has to make uh, less than 21668 per year. A family of four has to make less than 41000 a year. Um, to put that in perspective, if you work full-time at minimum wage in Alberta, you're earning 31000 a year. So there's a group of people who are making less than minimum wage or working less than full-time hours on minimum wage, and they, they wouldn't qualify for legal aid. Mm -hmm. And can those people afford a lawyer? Probably not, right? So there's, you know, a good chunk of people who just simply can't can't afford to have a lawyer. So money comes comes into play. Um, so like I said, there's, there's legal aid is available. There's often also legal clinics in a variety of places. So in Edmonton, we've got the Edmonton Community Legal Center. Calgary has Calgary Legal Guidance. There's a Grand Prairie Legal Clinic. There's a Central Alberta Legal Clinic. Um, the law schools have clinics where the law students help out student legal services and student legal uh, assistance in Calgary. Um, but still, there's often a gap between eligibility for those programs and actually being able to afford a lawyer um, or to afford the kind of quality of lawyer that you need, depending on your case. Um, you might have a complicated case and you're going to need to find a lawyer who's a bit more experienced. And generally, fees go up with experience. That's that's how it often works. Um, people may be involuntarily without a lawyer because of geography. So in Edmonton, we've got a lot of family lawyers available now. That being said, there's still lots of people in Edmonton who have a hard time finding a lawyer for their case. But imagine if you are in rural Alberta. Um, there's a lot of places where there just aren't a lot of great options for lawyers. Either they aren't available at all or um, the options you have are quite limited. There's only a few. You may not appreciate the style of the lawyer. So I've heard that some communities will have kind of a, a prevailing style where the lawyers all kind of tend to be a bit more litigious. And maybe if you want to do an ADR process, it's hard to find someone who that's their approach or vice versa. You may be in a community where all the family lawyers really, really love collaborative law, which is great. But if you have a file where that just isn't an appropriate approach, it might be hard to find a litigator. So you may have a lack of options, even if there are lawyers practicing in their, in your area. Um, if you have a really difficult case, sometimes like lawyers just don't want to take that on. Um, I 
do have files where there's family violence. That's what I talked about last time I was here, but I can only have so many family violence files on my caseload at a given time. I only have the emotional capacity for so many files. And so I am turning people down because I, I just don't want to take on another file that's going to be really difficult and time consuming and emotionally draining. And that's just part of my own self-care. And every lawyer is going to have their own limitations and what they want to take on. So if you've got a difficult file, a complex file, a high conflict file, like if I see those words in a request for a consult, I think twice, do I have the capacity for this? And those are the people are going to have a hard time finding a lawyer, even if there's technically lawyers available, no one may be willing to take on their file. Or if you've got maybe a high profile person on a file, someone, people might not want to get involved. Um, so that might be another reason why people are stuck without, without a lawyer, even if they want one. And then there's other barriers. Um, you might have a language barrier where um, it's hard to communicate with your lawyer. You might have a disability that makes it hard to get to your lawyer's office. Um, there's a lot of reasons where people, the, the normal barriers that people experience in day-to-day -day life are going to be the same barriers that prevent them from having um, a robust relationship with a lawyer. Right. So, that's kind of the, the bad news. <laughs> uh, so there are lots of people who would rather have a lawyer, but they're stuck without it for whatever reason. And so hopefully we'll have some tips today that will help um, people who are in that case. Um, on the other hand, there are people who are voluntarily without a lawyer. They could, in theory, put resources towards a lawyer and hire one, but they've decided not to. Um, sometimes that's because maybe a process doesn't really require a lawyer, maybe in the early stages. So some processes are designed to operate. Some legal processes are designed to operate without lawyers. So um, if you have a simple parenting issue or a child support issue, you might be able just to work that out and then use one of the government programs to have a order entered, or, or maybe you don't even need an order if you get along for parenting. Maybe, maybe you don't need a lawyer in that case. You just figure out how to do life mm -hmm. uh, when you're separated. So sometimes you don't need it. Or um, an example of a process that's designed for people without lawyers is um, in Alberta, we have the Residential Tenancy Dispute Resolution Service. So that's for landlord and tenant disputes. You can bring a lawyer to that process, but you don't have to. And most people don't. It's designed for people to, to go ahead without a lawyer in that. The, the issues are usually fairly straightforward and the, the hearing officers are able to navigate people through that process. So for some people, they are voluntarily without a lawyer because ah, why spend money on something you legitimately don't need a lawyer for? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people are voluntarily without a lawyer because they've had a bad experience with a lawyer um, or they have a negative view of lawyers from maybe family members or just from what you hear in media or hear from, from people and you just think, you know what? Lawyers are just going to make things worse. And there are times where I've taken over files and I've thought, man, this lawyer, <laughs> this lawyer made things worse. Or I have a lawyer who comes onto a file on the other side and I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be more difficult because of that lawyer. And so that's sometimes a legitimate concern. That then hopefully can be resolved by just finding a lawyer who fits um, fits with what you want and the approach you want. Um, but maybe, maybe you don't, again, have that option in your area. Um, sometimes people don't see the value. They know that they're competent and they are good at writing and expressing themselves and doing research. And they just don't see the value in hiring a lawyer uh, for what they want to do. Sometimes people have bad experiences for like real reasons. Like maybe uh, if you're a racialized person or, or part of the LGBTQ2S community and you've had a bad experience with the lawyers in your area and felt like you've been discriminated against. Those are all reasons why people may say, I'm going to try it on my own. I'm not going to give money to a person where I feel like I'm not being respected or, or getting value for, for what I'm, uh, what I'm paying for. Mm -hmm. And I think as lawyers, it's really important for us to pay attention to those reasons. And so as different groups research, um, 
why people are self-represented, that's really important for us as a profession to look at what are people saying about their experiences with lawyers. Mm. Yeah, it's a category we can definitely learn about and do better in, right? We may have, <laughs> we may be limited in how much we charge um, or the subject matter that we offer help in, but we can definitely increase our our knowledge in those areas. Yeah. I think, I think there's also a... a Sometimes there's a, percep- a perception of lack of available lawyers because of being in a rural area or whatever reason. And that's not necessarily the reality, especially post-COVID, because pre-COVID, it really was kind of a barrier for people. They, they wouldn't want to meet their lawyer by a video conference, or less people would. But post-COVID is totally norm- the norm. Yeah. And many times almost anything except for maybe a trial a a lawyer can represent somebody from anywhere in the world Uh, and even in even a trial as long as you get permission from they have they have the technology to do it so some even though you may not it may be difficult to find a, a lawyer that's advertising i'll represent someone from anywhere my advice my tip for the self-represented litigant or someone who's thinking whether or not they should represent themselves is, and they want a lawyer, is just do research for a lawyer anywhere in the province that you are and find one you think might be a good fit and reach out to them. And chances are that they might represent you, even though you could be in Grand Prairie and they're in Lethbridge. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's a good tip. Um, there are people then who are also involuntarily or sorry, voluntarily self-represented who don't have a lawyer. Uh, for some reason, these are the people who, who make things difficult, right? So they don't like the advice they've received. And so a lawyer has told them, Hey, you don't have a great case. Uh, you should be reasonable. You know, like Evan was talking about earlier, they're saying what this other side is saying is reasonable. They don't buy it. They think they know better. They want to take a run at the law. They want to make challenges. Um, those, those are, we're definitely getting to the territory of the problematic self-rep, uh, the ones who make files really difficult. Um, some people, I think this is a minority, but there are some people who see it as a strategic advantage uh, where they think, well, if we go to court, the court's going to have mercy on me because I don't have a lawyer. I'm going to be able to get away with, you know, not understanding the rules. Um, it might drive up the costs for my ex if they have to pay a lawyer for all these steps and I'm not paying a lawyer. So there are, I do think this is definitely the minority, but there are people who have that kind of mentality and will see it as a, as a strategic advantage, uh, whether that's true or not in the end, that often ends up coming and biting you in the butt in the end. Um, but some people see it that way. Um, then there are kind of this subcategory, and I won't spend too much time on this because I think it's a huge topic, but the subcategory of people who kind of ascribe to fringe legal theories, uh, I'll call it. So um, people who might be known as Freeman on the land or sovereign citizens or detaxers or, or people who have been sold that there is a secret language to the law. And if you do these things, then then you'll get away with this and that. Um, for anyone interested in that topic, there was a, a really thorough case out of the uh, Court of, or sorry, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench in 2012 called Meads and Meads, M-E-A-D-S, uh, from Justice Rook. And it described the situation, uh, that, that situation. And the terminology that, uh, that Justice Rook used in that case was organized pseudo-legal commercial argument litigants, uh, or OSCALs. And so pseudo-legal, I think, is the, is the key term in there, where 
they're not really arguing legitimate law. They've been uh, told or sold um, a package of secret knowledge um, that actually doesn't really work, but they've been convinced that this is actually how we how we deal with legal issues. And those people can be really difficult to deal with and cause lots of difficulties. Um, there's some really interesting articles available about that phenomenon. And I think there's like entire websites and podcast series <laughs> dedicated uh-huh. to to those folks. And it's an interesting rabbit hole. Um, I uh, there's a, a lawyer at the Court of Kings bench in Alberta named Donald Net- Netolitsky. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. And he's done some articles about this that are available for free on Canly. Um, and his re- he's done research about self-reps at higher levels of court, so particularly at the Supreme Court. And what he found in his research is that 20 to 30 percent of all new um, Supreme Court filings were by self-reps, but that the overwhelming majority of those failed to pass the leave process. So just real quick, Supreme Court, not everything that not every case that wants to go to the Supreme Court actually gets to go to the Supreme Court. You first need to go through this kind of gatekeeping process where the court decides if they even want to hear the matter or not, if they're going to hear it. Uh, and so you first generally have to make a leave application. Um, and so that's your gatekeeping step. So if 30% of the new files are coming from self-reps, but the vast majority of them are not getting through, that tells you that probably the quality of of those cases are are not what the Supreme Court is wanting to decide. Yeah. Um, and in those cases, that's where uh, Donald has done his research has found that the vast majority of those litigants are people who fall into this category of, of really kind of problematic um, uh, fringe legal theory kind of thinking. So we don't see that as much in the lower courts when we first start a file, especially in family law. But as things progress and go higher uh, into appeals, it's more likely that you're going to see people who are engaging in that, who are self-represented. That's not to say that self-reps don't have a chance at appellate courts. Um, There are certainly, if there is a case and someone for whatever reason decides to self-represent, it doesn't mean they, if they have a legitimate case that it it won't be heard. Um, I think a great example of that is in Alberta, a key uh, case about financial disclosure, Cunningham, that was a court of appeal case in 2017. The Cunningham case really talked about disclosure and business matters. The the appellant in that case was a self-represented litigant. So she took it to this court of appeal on her own and was successful. So she had a good case and she got, she got a fair result because it was a good case. So uh, again, that's not to say if you're self-represented at the appellate level, it's not going to go well for you, but uh, is going to come down to whether you have a good case or not, right? And that's, I think, the point is that a lot of the, a lot of the self reps that are at the higher level are bringing cases that aren't aren't so great, and probably a lawyer told them that along the way, and that's the mm-hmm. reason why they're self represented. Yeah. So that's just some thoughts about why people are self represented, and of course, why they are will affect how they are to deal with on a file, and um, whether they're going to be open to tips from us or not about how to make a file go easier. So if people are not interested in the file going easier and the, the whole reason why they're self-represented is to be difficult, then they're they're probably not going to be too interested in, in what we have to say here. But I think the vast majority of people who engage in uh, family litigation in the early stages who are self-represented are probably not not the ones who are trying to be difficult. They're just trying mm-hmm. to solve a problem, but don't have the ability to, to get the assistance uh, to do that. So just some tips. So I just want to talk about some tips in terms of working with the other lawyer. And this touches on what Evan was talking a little bit earlier. So we do have obligations as lawyers when it comes to how we deal with 
unrepresented people. And so our code of conduct, which can be found on our Law Society's website, um, talks about this specifically at um, 7.212. And it says there that uh, when a lawyer deals with an unrepresented person, the lawyer must advise the unrepresented person to obtain independent legal representation. Uh, they must take care to see that the unrepresented person is not proceeding under the impression that his or her interests will be protected by the lawyer. And uh, they have to make it clear that the unrepresented person, that the lawyer is acting exclusively in the interest of their own client. So uh, if you're a self-rep and you're getting communication from the other side's lawyer, it, you probably should see something in that first set of communication that you're being advised to get your own lawyer, to get your own independent legal advice. That's really the only advice we can give to a self-represented person is get your own lawyer and talk to them about your legal issue. And for them to be very clear that I represent so-and-so, I do not represent you. Um, I ran into this one time where there was some confusion because my signature line says lawyer, comma, mediator, because I, I play both roles, but not on the same file. And so um, either I'm someone's lawyer or I'm acting as an impartial mediator. Um, but the self-rep who I had emailed just saw my signature line and thought, well, I was, that was my role. I was both a lawyer and a mediator for their file. And so then there was some confusion and I had to be really clear. No, 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 I'm, I'm not impartial. I am representing your, your ex. And so I think we have to be careful as lawyers to make sure that that's really clear. And even though that's a concept we understand really well, that may not be a concept that the other side understands really well or self-rep understands well. And we need to be quite clear about that. So we, we also have an obligation under our code not to take advantage of people's vulnerabilities. And so um, that's a difficult balance, this tension between I have to serve my client and their interests, and I can't give advice to the self-rep, but I also can't take advantage of their vulnerabilities. And, and just um, not having experience and knowledge is a vulnerability, right? There's an inherent power imbalance there. And so that's a tension that, and Evan was touching on this earlier, that makes these files really nerve wracking when we get them is, well, how do we walk that tightrope of protect, like looking out for our own client's interests, not giving advice, but also not taking advantage of vulnerabilities. If a self-rep is missing a really key point uh, in an argument, um, I'm not, I don't want to raise it if it's against my client's interests, right? If, if they don't know it, right? So it, that's why we're always often always encouraging people get, get some legal advice. Just have, just have a consult with somebody, just run over this. Like I would almost always rather someone have a lawyer than not have a lawyer. Um, though there are some lawyers on the other side that I don't love working with. It's still probably better and at least more balanced. Um, when someone else is getting their own advice. So it can be a difficult tightrope for us to navigate as lawyers. Most of us though, aren't, you know, aren't out to get, get you or take advantage of you. And, and we can't, we can't take advantage of your vulnerabilities. That's not to say that like, I, I wouldn't say to every self rep, oh, trust the lawyer on the other side, <laughs> because like Evan said, there are some lawyers who are unethical. There are lawyers who get in trouble with the law society. We're, we're humans. And some of us are better at our jobs than others, right? Um, a lot of us, though, are not are, are interested in being fair and getting to good resolutions, especially, I think, those who practice family law and are interested in good outcomes for kids. Um, that being said, I, I think um, a self-rep should li listen carefully um, if they can get some legal advice. And I'll talk a bit about that just to do some gut checks. Um, that can be really helpful. But we do have obligations not to, to take advantage uh, of other people and their vulnerabilities. Different lawyers will have different approaches to how they deal with self-reps. There are some who will maybe try and push some boundaries. Um, but like I said, a lot of us will be 
try and be fair. And frankly, um, some lawyers will bend over backwards to be fair uh, because they don't want to get in trouble with the law society. They don't want a deal to unravel down the road because a self-rep said, oh, I, I didn't know what was going on. I felt taken advantage of. So sometimes we'll go out of our way to be extra fair, to give extra opportunities to give extra chances just so that we don't run into those troubles down the road to make sure we've crossed every T and dotted every I uh, to make sure that that nothing runs amok. So sometimes we'll we'll even take those extra steps for our own for our own self-interest uh, and protection and, and in the interest of our clients. I've got a question, Sarah. In hmm. terms of bringing in independent legal advice as someone who's self-representing themselves, what could that look like? Like generally we talk about it on this podcast that uh, like in the do-it-yourself sense that people are just getting their ILA at the end just to verify that nobody's made some uh, horrendous decisions. But could that independent legal advice, I think you kind of touched on it, could you just pop in and get consults from time to time? And what lawyers would be interested in that sort of spotty relationship? Yeah. Totally. So that would be what we would normally refer to as a coaching relationship or limited scope or limited services. Um, and I know that Ken Proudman came on one time and talked a bit about that. And and there's a whole organization that I think Heather and Evan are very involved in uh, about legal coaching. Um, what's the website? AlbertaLegal.org. Is that right? Yes. Evan's nodding his head. Um that talks about coaching and, and limited services. And so we absolutely, as lawyers, can enter into contracts, retainers, with clients to say, I'm not taking on this file and representing you every step of the way. I'm not going to talk for you. I'm not going to, maybe I'm not going to go to court for you. I'm only going to do what you're inviting me to do on the file. And that's a really great way for self-reps, especially people who who want a lawyer but can't afford full-blown lawyer, but they just need a lawyer to help with the really tough parts or to do some gut checks. And so someone could have a consult or they could have a coaching session where they just talk to their lawyer, say, this is what's going on. This is where, where, what I think my position is. This is what the other side's position is. What do you think? What are, what are the things I should be asking about? What are the things, how, how does the law apply in this case? Um, and then that person can take that information, that advice and go back to the negotiation or to court or whatever it is on their own. So we just are really clear in our contracts with our clients in those cases about what we're doing and what we're not doing and really clear to make sure we advise the court or the other side that we're not in a full-blown representation mode, but that we're just representing for these small things. And so I've definitely helped clients in that capacity. So maybe someone is going to special chambers. And so in special chambers, you have to file an affidavit and you have to file a, a legal brief. And so I've had clients come to me and say, well, I can do the affidavit because I know my own story. I can, I can tell my story. Those are my facts. I can represent myself in court if I know what I have to say. I just, I just don't know the law. Can you write the letter for me? And then I've been retained to just write the legal brief. And then using that legal brief, the client is able to say their side and that, that gives them the prompts for what they say in court. Uh, and so all they've had to pay me to do is write a letter. Now it's, you know, usually takes a few hours to write a good concise letter. Uh, but then you've paid the lawyer just for those few hours instead of having them help with all the other pieces. So you just come in and pop in. Um, or like I said, coaching, you just do some gut checks, just do basically some meetings to talk about what's going on, get some advice and go forward. So, so that legal advice can happen at any point. Um, and it can be, that is probably, probably one of the, the most important tips I think for self-represented litigants is to look at where they're at in the file, 
decide what are the things they can really handle on their own, but where do they need help from a lawyer and then pay for that thing, right? Um, I think it's really a good idea for a self-rep to do something like that early on in the process to get some advice about, okay, just give me the basics. How does property law work? How does the law and parenting work? Just get there. Here's my particular situation. What, you know, what do I need to watch out for, right? To early on figure out what's going on, where are their strengths and weaknesses of their case? What might be a reasonable position to take? And then that might give them enough information and, um, advice to get them through a few steps on their own. Um, and then if they hit another barrier, they can come back to that, that lawyer and say, okay, here, here's where we are now. What do we do next? What's my next thing? A lot of times too, as lawyers, what we can provide advice on is not just what the law says, but what's reasonable and what is reasonable in the, about the things that are maybe not easy to find online, like, um, trends or like how much notice, there's a difference between how much notice is required under rules. And then there's a difference between like what we as lawyers kind of expect is actually reasonable given our, our busy practices, right? So to do some of those gut checks and talk about, well, what's actually kind of reasonable within the community, um, when, when to ad- agree to things, when to push things, um, that's, those, those are some nuanced things that oftentimes are going to be hard to find in, in official research and would be useful to, to hear from an actual practicing lawyer about. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, it really just, you know, makes me more surprised that people have the confidence to, to go the self-rep uh, route. And I wonder if it's more just like just having no knowledge of anything and just thinking that it's not overly complicated um, or whether it is mostly about the money. But uh, yeah, just, I mean, the whole system where you have one lawyer on one side and and no lawyer on the other side to me just seems uh, loppy. And um, I, I, I see it from your side that that would be difficult to navigate. And, you know, some files are, are straightforward. Mm-hmm. So you've got two parents who get along pretty well. They can figure out parenting. They really, it's not complicated. Sometimes child support is super simple. You know, if you've got, if you've got em- employees, their income and their taxes align, you apply the tables. It's super easy. Um, sometimes property is really easy. There's a lot of people don't have anything to divide, right? <laughs> it's like, let's just sell the house and split it. You Like, it's not complicated. But if you get into some some conflict if you get into some more nuanced areas if you've got businesses if you've got complicated incomes if you've got unique circumstances happening then just even having paying for an hour of a lawyer's time just to find out where should I be focusing what should I be giving up on what's reasonable can be really invaluable and save you a lot of time and energy because even if you're not paying for a lawyer you're still paying for your time right? Your time is not worth nothing. Your stress is not worth nothing, right? Like resolution. And I'm sure you've talked about this a lot when we talk about staying out of court, if you can, right? Resolution has value. Early resolution has value beyond just saving money, right? Your time, your stress, your relationships, all those things have value. And if you can save them, if you can maintain them, if you can repair them um, by getting to resolution rather than, than continuing on in the conflict, that that has, that has value and and you decide what that's worth, right? You know what your time is worth, you know what your stress is worth. Um, and so it might be worth $400 to talk to a lawyer for an hour or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, some other tips in terms of dealing with uh, a lawyer on the other side would be to um, don't forget to communicate with them. So if you have a court date coming up, you absolutely should be talking to the lawyer about if you need an adjournment, if the date doesn't work for you. Um, can you resolve anything? Is there anything that you guys are arguing about that we could just cleave off and say, okay, we agree on these things, but these are the things that are outstanding. You should know what the issues are before court. Um, because of like one of the newer processes we have in Alberta is docket court, and we don't have to file a whole lot of materials for that. So sometimes that means we go into docket court, we don't really know what the issues are. A phone, uh, not a phone call, but some email communication uh, in advance is going to probably make those appearances go a lot more smoothly. And I often... Um, have interacted with with litigants, especially when I was have been doing some duty counsel work, and they they haven't talked to the other lawyer and said, you know, I, I really need an adjournment. If you had told them that two days ago, you probably could have all avoided going down to a court in the first place. So don't be afraid to talk to the lawyer. A lot of lawyers are going to prefer to talk to self reps in writing. And that's because we don't know who you are and what kind of self-rep you are and whether you're one of the crazy ones or whether you're one of the uh, competent ones. And we just want to make sure there's no miscommunication. And it's probably for everybody's benefit just to communicate in writing. And that's, I mean, we all email anyways these days, right? So I find I'm communicating with my clients by email more than phone in any events. Um, but so that's probably to everybody's benefit that you just communicate in email so it's really clear. Are there costs uh, in there? Like it, lawyers typically charge for communication with their own clients. What does it look like communicating with the self-rep? Yeah. So this is like my next bullet point was, but don't communicate with a lawyer too much. Because <laughs> if you're sending them three emails a day, they're charging that to their own client. And that is often a concern for my client when there's a self-rep on the other side, is they're concerned about the fact that they're paying for me to talk to the other side. And that's just the reality of how billing works unless... Uh, billing by the hour, it wouldn't work on a, in a fluffy model, which is another way to, another way to go. Um, but if you're going, if you're billing by the hour, then you are like, I'm, I'm charging my client for all the work I do on their file. I try and be really careful when I, if I have a self-rep on the other side, especially if they're sending me a bunch of little ones, I, I try and be smart about it and to reduce costs for my client and, and try and be efficient about it. Um, but sometimes self-reps either strategically on purpose or because they just don't know any better, we'll send a bunch of emails and that can be really difficult to manage. Also, sometimes they will um, give unreasonable timelines, like respond to me within 24 hours. Well, we have busy practices. It's very common for lawyers to take a full week to get back to you. That's not them being difficult or that's just the fact that we have lots of clients and we also have our own lives to live. Um, but so yeah, communicate. there's a balance there, just like there is with anything where you need to communicate, but also, keep it reasonable, keep it manageable. Um, and there may be times where a lawyer might put up some boundaries if it's getting a lot, where um, the, the lawyer might say to you, look, I'm only going to look at your emails once a week. That's that's how I'm going to... We have an obligation to respond to communications, uh, but that's, the obligation is to be reasonable in that, right? And so um, if it gets too much, we you might hear some, get some feedback about that. So you got to be reasonable and know that you're dealing with a, a busy person who's got a lot going on. Um, and for the self-rep, this is their life, right? That's probably all they think about, right? Or they think about the majority of the day. For us, I'm not thinking about your file all day long. I'm thinking about a whole bunch of people's files, plus my own dramas that I have to deal with in my own life. <laughs> Another tip I would give is, is to not be afraid to ask questions or ask for clarifications. If uh, the lawyer slips into some of our jargon, um, there, as much as we're trying to get rid of the Latin, there are still things that 
hang around. So if a lawyer says to you, we're going to adjourn sine die, and you don't know what sine die means, that's perfectly reasonable to not know what that means. And it's okay to say, what does sine die mean? And then they can explain what it means. There are times where the lawyer is going to say, well, I'm not going to give you legal advice, right? You need to talk to your own lawyer. But if it's something simple like that, that absolutely can be explained. And we just sometimes need to be reminded to speak English instead of Latin or, or jargon. Um, it's important well, the for- thing is- the thing yeah. is, sir, even if you know Latin, you're not going to know what we're talking about because we just made up our own pronunciation. Totally. I, think the, I think the classical Latin, and I don't know classical Latin, I just know Spanish, but I think the classical Latin would be something along the lines of sine die, but we say sine die. We do. <laughs> and I, yeah, I have no idea if that's right or not. I certainly, I certainly didn't learn Latin. Um, yeah, I was watching something and they talked about war deer means this or that. And I'm like, that's not what that means, but it actually is how we've interpreted it to mean. And so, yes, but you're right. And even knowing Latin won't help you speak, speak legalese. So yeah, ask questions. It's not dumb. We all know that you're not a lawyer and that that's okay uh, for you to, for you to ask questions. I would encourage self reps to not forget about exploring resolution. Not every legal problem needs to be resolved in court. And I think that many topics on this podcast cover that, that just because you're a self rep doesn't mean we're going to court. And just because court has been started doesn't mean you can't take a step back. Um, and that you uh, can talk about, well, how, how can we reach a resolution on some or all of these issues without leaving it to a judge? A really important point for self reps to know is that ignoring a problem almost never makes it go away. <laughs> Ignoring a problem almost always makes it worse, especially if a court process has been started. If you've been served with a statement of claim, if you do not respond to it, the plaintiff can go ahead and get what they ask for. So ignoring it makes things worse almost always. And avoiding service just leaves you at a disadvantage because you then don't know what's going on. And um, the courts have processes for us to deal with people who are unresponsive. And so generally accept service, know what someone is doing against you in court so that you can respond, respond to things. Every court form has information at the bottom of it that says your timelines to respond and oftentimes what forms to use. Uh, so uh, ignoring it, putting your head in the sand generally is going to make things worse for you and uh, more expensive and uh, harder to unravel once, once that's been resolved. So ignoring is not a good it's not a good legal strategy uh if you are going to explore settlement um oftentimes what we'll do are we'll have settlement meetings that's a very common way for us especially in the family law world to to reach resolution is get together either on zoom or in a boardroom and have a conversation um if you feel the imbalance the fact that you don't have a lawyer with you you can ask to bring a support person with you it's up to the other side and the other lawyer if if they'll agree to that because a settlement meeting is always voluntary and if if people don't like the circumstances of the settlement meeting, they can say no to it. But if you're making a reasonable request that you just want a support person with you, the other side might say yes. It's really important that you choose an appropriate support person in that setting, someone who ideally is not emotionally involved, uh, someone who is not going to try and be an advocate, someone who's just going to be there really as a support. Um, it might be more appropriate to have them sit out in the waiting room and so that you can like touch base with them during breaks rather than have them in the room. But if you have that friend or that family member who's like a really nice stabilizing supportive force or maybe a professional support person like a, a social worker that you're engaged with or um, 
see if you can't bring them and they can be a, a they could be really helpful in keeping things on the right track and just to help you know what's going on if a lot of information is being thrown at you a lot of ideas are being thrown at you it might just be helpful to have that second set of ears um in the room um i you know i i've had cases where that support person has been a total disaster in the settlement meeting where they've been very intrusive they thought they were a lawyer they thought their experience was relevant and um so it doesn't always work um, but again if you choose the right person uh someone who's going to stay supportive throughout then that can be a real help uh to get to get to agreement so those are my tips for working with the other lawyer um i wanted to touch base about doing legal research um so there's kind of two elements to this there's researching how to self-represent um, and then there's doing research on your particular legal issue um, in terms of self-representing, there's some really excellent resources available uh, for Canadian self-reps. So I just want to draw attention to two. Um, there's the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, NSRLP. They have a website called uh, representingyourselfcanada.com. It's associated with uh, the University of Windsor, and it's a continuation of research that Professor Julie McFarlane did in 2013. Um, their job or their mandate is to advocate for the needs of self-reps, advocate for systemic change, to continue to do research, but also to provide resources. So their website has a ton of checklists, um, how-to pamphlets. Some of them are really practical, like how to get a transcript or how to use uh, Canly, which is a really important uh, website uh, that has Canadian case law on it. Um, there's guides to represent yourself in court. So that's a really great resource and it's a reliable resource. Um, the other one that's really useful for people who are going to go to a court process, especially to a trial, um, is the Canadian Judicial Council um, has um, really thorough, comprehensive handbooks for civil trials, criminal trials, and family trials. I looked at the family law handbook and it's 180 pages long of like really good content of even like, here's how to do a closing argument and here's how to do this and that. It's super comprehensive. Um, so the Canadian Judicial Council, their mandate is to improve the quality of judicial services. <laughs> They're the same people who like look out for bad judge behavior. They regulate judges. Um, but I think what they found is that it's really hard for judges as well to have self-represented people in their courtroom and anything that, um, that they can do to make it easier for everybody, including the judges, then judges aren't put in that difficult position to, um, to have to give, they, they can't give people advice, right? They can't give um, self-reps advice, but they also have to make sure it's a fair process. So I, I think the judicial council was interested in creating a handbook that the judges could say, oh, here you go read this, use this, then I don't need to give you the advice on how to do it. So those are two really great websites for self-reps to check out if they find themselves in court. So that's like one piece for the, the research side, the gaining knowledge side is just representing yourself. The other side is with your particular legal issue, you need to figure out what the law is. Um, librarians are amazing. I'll just start with that. <laughs> I think we we undervalue librarians at every step of the way. Any like if you ever have a question, like librarians are highly trained at getting information. Librarians are great. Um, the courthouses in Alberta have law libraries. And so the Edmonton courthouse has a law library with really excellent law librarians in it. Uh, and if you go in there and say, hey, I'm doing research on child support for children over 18 under the provincial legislation, they will help you figure out 
where to go, whether it's in the stacks, the actual books, or more likely online of where you're going to research. And they're going to help you figure out what are reliable websites, uh, what are not reliable websites, um, what's good information, what's not good information. So I would say I'm always surprised at how empty the library is when I go in it at the courthouse because it's such a great resource and it's free for people. Um, So that's a great place if you're self-represented, go to the library. Uh, If you're doing research on your own, just like with any research, you got to be careful about the websites you go to. Um, I mentioned Canly a couple of times. So Canly, C-A-N-L-I-I.org um, is where all case law in, in Canada is, is put up. They also have started putting up commentary as well. And so research, there's a really excellent textbook on Canley about family violence, uh, those papers by Donald that I was mentioning earlier on there. And so it's a great place. And it's a reliable It's a reliable website for legal information, for case law. Um, And then once you figure out what cases might be relevant to your your case, um, you go back to those websites I mentioned earlier, um, the the one, uh, the representyourselfcanada.com or .org, whatever, has uh, one of their pamphlets is how to, how to, assess case law, how to, how to look at a case and figure out how it applies to your, how it applies to your, your situation. Um, so in conjunction, uh, you should be in a really good position with those two resources. There's also, um, legal nonprofits that provide helpful resources. So in Edmonton, we've got them to community legal center. They've got lots of great handbooks. We also have an organization in Alberta called the center for public legal education, Alberta or CPLIA. And their whole mandate is to put out resources for people about legal issues. So not just family law, but also civil, criminal, really excellent resources, training sessions. So if you find organizations that are legitimate, that are um, looking at what their mandates are, uh, looking at where their funding comes from, you can find some really excellent neutral um, resources. Law firms have also really started, they're upping their game when it comes to blogs, and so a lot of law, uh, law firms will have articles on their websites. And it's a way that we drive traffic to our websites. There's some strategy behind that. But it has the added advantage of providing some legal tidbits for people who are trying to do legal research. So if it's coming from a law firm, it's likely going to be good information. That's not to say always 100%. I don't know how many blog posts are written by chat GPT, um, if it's by the students, whether it's been reviewed. Um, And it's important to remember that not one size fits all, right? So a lot of times blog posts are going to have general information. It may not get into your particular case and it may not be applicable, but that's not a bad place to go as well. Um, An important thing to remember about online research is jurisdiction. So um, you want to be looking for Canadian information. You want to be looking for Alberta information or whatever province you're in um, because the law can change from province to province, even for like the Divorce Act is federal legislation. But how we apply it can have some nuances in each province. And so ideally, you're going to find information from your particular province um, so that it is um, reliable and useful. Um, I'll be careful about relying on stories from your family and friends. Their particular experience is their particular experience. It may or may not have relevance to yours. They may have an interesting quirk, and they may not be the most reliable narrator either about their own story. Um, Be aware of untrained, self-proclaimed advisors um, who are relying on their own personal experience. There are some folks out there who have had their own family law drama and then tried to turn that into a career. And... um, Maybe you look them, you look at their actual case on Canley and find out that maybe they weren't that successful in what they did. Uh, they have their own bent and they may have their own um, agenda. So be careful about 
self-proclaimed non-lawyer advisors. Uh, in Alberta, the only people who can give legal advice are lawyers. Um, paralegals are not like we don't have a we don't have a great regulatory system for paralegals in Alberta yet. Hopefully that will change. But so paralegals are also really limited in what they can do. You really, if you want to get legal advice, do you need to talk to a lawyer? That's unfortunate. Um, maybe from a financial perspective, but that's that's the deal. And so if you're getting legal advice, it should be coming from a lawyer. Um, and of course, be aware of some of those pseudo-legal gurus who may be trying to to sell you some secret knowledge that actually is not actually very good knowledge. So you mentioned uh, ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's good. It's good to talk about AI because, uh, well, people may may be aware of this gentleman in the United States who um, had a, a great legal argument, and when the judge went to check the cases that he cited, they didn't exist. They were made up by ChatGPT, and then he admitted, yeah, sorry, I used ChatGPT. I don't know how it went for that guy. I don't know if he's still practicing law or what, but um, uh, so be, be wary of ChatGPT. But that being said, I use a service called Alexi, A-L-E-X-I dot com. And I think they're available for anybody. I don't think you have to, like, they didn't check my law society membership number or something <laughs> like that. And there, you know, it's it, there is a little bit of a trick to how you ask this thing in question, just the way you ask me AI a question. But I found them to be really, really helpful and and, and very efficient. Um, so they charge somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three hundred dollars for a, a memo that will provide like a summary of the law. It doesn't provide legal advice. But like, if you want to find out, well, what are all the, the leading cases on a particular issue? That's a great resource to use. And it costs a little bit of money, but it's cheaper than having Denton's prepare the same <laughs> research paper for you. So, yeah, I, I use those. I personally use those guys and uh, I find them to be helpful. The few times I, I don't do it very often because I, I need that service when I'm going to court to argue about something. And I just don't have files where I'm doing that very often. But that's all the more reason of why I use them because they get me to, they save me a ton of time. I'm trying to like go through all that myself. So have you yeah. ever, have you used them, Sarah? No, no. We did play around a little bit with chat GPT for some blog posts just to see, like um, give it some prompts to see what, what came up. And we're actually pleasantly surprised with when you talk about, especially a general topic, like give me the top five reasons why mediation is a, is a good thing. Like, it often will come up with some, some pretty useful stuff, but sometimes there's something that's just like a, a little off or not quite right. And it does take the, the trained, the trained eye to, to look through and, and pick up on those things. But yeah, as, as AI gets better and better, it's probably going to be a really helpful and useful resource to, to self-represented litigants, especially if, if they can at least do the research and understand kind of the basics of their case and maybe the key cases, you might want to get a, an AI program to do a, a first draft of something for you, um, but then go through it and, and see if it matches up with the research you've done. Yeah. yeah. So Alexi.com, it's important to understand that these guys are not just chat branded chat GPT. They have people that they have a person involved that right. like um, makes sure that everything is on the yeah. up and up. So yeah. it's a, it, it's a resource you can trust that's not going to hallucinate. That's what they call it when Chappie makes some stuff up. <laughs> Hallucination. 
they're not going to hallucinate. It's going to, it's, it's washed over by a human being. Um, so, um, and they're really quick, like 24 hours. Yeah. To get yeah. The product, so yeah, um, yeah. I reckon, I recommend them. They're good. I used and them I- once and it was, it was good. Yeah, it was good. It was, I felt like it was worth the money and it really did identify a lot of cases that you could look at and that were on point. So yeah, it was really helpful. It and if a it's a summary of the primary law too. So they'll give you a summary of like then the sections from the act uh, for whatever mm-hmm. issue is, is you're mm-hmm. having. Sorry, Sarah. No, it's okay. Um, I was just going to say that if it costs money, but that's still less money than paying our lawyer to do that research for you, then it's, it's probably worth it. If it's a quality product that you can trust and, um, I, that sounds like a re- really useful resource for people who are are going through the court process. And maybe even it isn't about providing a document to the court, but just doing a memo, like you say, of like, well, what is the law in this area to help you then make an assessment about what might be reasonable in, in your particular case mm-hmm. and what pieces you should be pushing on and which ones you should be backing off on. Any other hot tips? No, just that. That's my only hot research tip. I hate research. (laughs) And uh, some lawyers love it. I don't. I hope you get like a free, a free memo out of that plug that you just did. (laughs) They're listening and they say one free memo for you, Evan Clark. (laughs) Send them this episode and I'll be like, hey guys, come on. I I guess if it's, yeah. If it's any consolation to people who are listening, who are representing themselves or trying to muddle their way through research, I, one of my hacks that I wear is uh, to provide sort of um, coaching to students who are done law school, but are going through their articling program. And the biggest challenge for them is legal research. It's really a difficult, it's a difficult skill to master. So um, yeah, I mean, I think if you can get that help there then and concentrate your money or your efforts, um, your time on that kind of thing where the skill of a lawyer really does, um, you know, get its max value that that's probably helpful. So just kind of to be reassuring too, that if it feels confusing and hard, it's because it is, right? That's why lawyers go to school for so long and go through training and For sure. And thankfully in family law, which is, you know, where a lot of our uh, expertise is in is, a lot of times it's not about difficult legal concepts, right? Parenting isn't a legal issue. I mean, it's a legal, it's a legal issue, but it really isn't. It's what's best for your kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't take a lot of complicated legal research that takes more about understanding your kid and knowing what's best for them. And maybe, maybe advice from a from a mental health professional instead of a lawyer, right? Yeah, that's right. Cause you can find the factors that a court might look at, but you're not going to find a case out there that says, this is what's best for the Jones kids, right? That's just not out there because it's totally. so unique to the family. Yeah. And that's one of my other tips is um, where might you make better use of your money by engaging a mental health professional or a divorce coach as opposed to a lawyer? I mean, or maybe you can fit in both, but if you're looking at really tight resources, um, there are times where, um, that might be a more useful, um, use of your money. So there are folks out there called divorce coaches. What they do is help people get through the divorce process. Um, a lot of times the issues we have with or difficulties we have with self reps is that they're being, they're motivated by emotions, right? One of the things we can provide to our clients is, is objectivity to sort through the emotions and figure out 
again, where what's reasonable aside from the emotions, because I'm not emotionally attached to your to your kids. You are great. You should be. Um, but I can provide you with an objective perspective. The other parent who doesn't have the lawyer giving them that perspective, they might benefit from a divorce coach who can help them work through the emotions, right? And help maybe improve communication so that you can come to agreements about your kids instead of fighting about them. Um, and so using a divorce coach is, is often a really useful tool to help get through um, get through the divorce process, including how to manage the legal process. Um, sometimes it's about engaging a, a therapist uh, instead of a coach, again, to deal with the emotions that are that are driving you, right? So for the most difficult self reps, it really, we see them often motivated by emotions and, and feeling like they've been hard done by and that they uh, really need to get their day in court. And oftentimes that's not actually what court is good at doing. Um, and so getting some of that resolution through therapy is probably a better use of not only your money, but also giving you long-term, long-term benefits. Um, when looking for a coach or for a therapist, it might help to look for someone who has experience with the legal system to understand what it's like, um, what the dynamics of, of court are like, and maybe have worked with lawyers. Um, so, for example, some ways to find therapists who have that kind of or coaches who have that kind of experiences, maybe look at who's associated with your local collaborative association or um, there's an organization called the AFCC, the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, and that's a, a international group of lawyers and mental health professionals who come together to figure out how we can do better for kids. And so um, psychologists who are associated with the AFCC um, kind of get the legal system. So not to say that people who aren't associated with those organizations don't have a good skill set, but if you're looking for someone who has particular experience with the, the court world, um, those might be some places to turn. Yeah, or looking at folks who um, maybe list custody assessments or PN assessments, those kinds of yeah. things on their websites, you know, then they've, you know, had some experience with family court and understand what's going on there. So they're not assessing you about yeah. custody, but, you know, they've got that background and they understand what a court's looking at when they're, when they're helping um, you out with the emotional side of things. That's right. I wanted to just touch really briefly on some tips about going to like court for for a, a trial. Um, I think a lot of the, the handbooks that I referenced from the CJC or from the um, um, National Project about self-represented litigants will have some even more in-depth tips about going into court, but I just wanted to touch on some things and maybe brainstorm with the rest of you about other tips about uh, being in trial. And so in provincial court, or now we call it the Court of Justice, Alberta Court of Justice, trials are pretty common for child support, parenting, um, the lawyer or the judges there are used to people without lawyers, so they are kind of used to helping people navigate that. Um, at the Court of King's Bench, trials are a bit more rare, quite a bit rare, um, but they do happen. And they certainly can happen with self-reps, especially where they are quite litigious um, for whatever reason. Uh, and so people may find themselves in trial um, or in a chamber's application or, or some sort of other appearance where they need to, to be in court. So just a few quick tips. Um, check and see when and where duty counsel is available. So, or, or sometimes they call themselves the, the like court lawyer, the court counsel. Um, that's a lawyer who's available just for the day, just to help you for the moment, navigate what you're going to do in court that day. But they can help you talk to the judge, explain the situation, help you understand what processes are available to you. Um, and so duty counsel is not available everywhere. And it's not available in every court appearance, but where it is, familiarize yourself with 
with what's available. The courthouse is an open place. Anybody can go there. You can pop into court any day of the week. Well, every <laughs> office hours during court hours, Monday to Friday, you can go in and you can go to the information desk and ask, where is their duty counsel? You can go watch court. So court is open. There's a few times where, where court is a closed process for, for privacy reasons, but for the most part, it's an open process. Go and watch, sit in DACA court or chambers or even a trial and see what goes on, see how people behave themselves, pick up on the norms, pick up on the language, um, just to feel comfortable in that space. Um, I said earlier, like the, the judges do have a really hard time also managing the tightrope that is making sure the process is fair for a self-rep, but also not um, so bending over backwards that it's unfair for the person with the lawyer and they can't give advice. And so they have a difficult time and they kind of, I think, probably hate seeing self-reps come in their courtroom sometimes too, just because they know it's going to be a bit more difficult. And so they're going to try and strike that balance of making sure it's a fair process, but you also shouldn't get advantages because you're self-represented um, to the to the detriment of the other party. Um, I said, go watch court. Definitely don't watch court on TV. <laughs> court on TV <laughs> is for entertainment. Uh, it is not accurate. Court in real life is much more boring. And so if you try and pull off some of the TV moments, uh, it, you're likely going to... <laughs> to not be successful. So go watch real court uh, rather than than TV court, especially it, it's important again to look at the jurisdiction where you're in. There's nuances in each court. There's uh, norms, ways of doing things, not only from province to province, but even from uh, town to town. I, sometimes what I'll see with self-reps is when they get up to talk to the judge, they they turn on fancy language. They They start using words that they would never use in real life and it sounds awkward and it doesn't communicate what they're trying to communicate. There is no fancy language you need to use. You can use your normal way of explaining things. The judge will understand and appreciate it. The judges are people too, and they know that it's hard to be in court. They're going to be sympathetic to you. Just talk like you would normally talk with respect. Of course, you're going to use appropriate language. You're not going to use profanity. You're going to use polite language. You're going to Mr. And Mrs. Um, uh, or just or judge or justice. Um, but don't worry about using the big words that you maybe don't even really understand what they mean because <laughs> it just ends up looking goofy sometimes. Um, you can have what's called a McKenzie friend if you're in court. And so a McKenzie friend is someone that is able to sit with you and take notes and makes quiet comments. And again, it's kind of like the idea of a support person. No one else other than lawyers is allowed to represent someone in court. There's some exceptions, like in provincial court, you can have... Some people, uh, you can get some assistance from agents, but the court of King's bench, no one can speak for you other than a lawyer, um, but you are allowed to bring up with you what we call the McKenzie friend. And so that can be a really helpful person to have. Again, just taking notes, keeping track of paperwork, um, whispering quietly to you if you've forgotten something, um, that could be a really useful person to have. Again, you want to pick the right person, the person who's going to behave themselves and act appropriately and be that support, um, but that's a, a useful resource for you. Um, Trials are hard. No, understanding the rules of evidence is hard for lawyers. <laughs> there are exceptions to hearsay that I still need. I'm trying to wrap my head around and I still argue with lawyers about. There are uh, exceptions to settlement privilege. I'm using words that people probably don't even know what that means. Um, the rules of evidence are are hard. Of And what that means is like what's allowed and what's not allowed. And so uh, it's important to educate yourself on the rules of evidence about what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. And it's important to listen to the judge when they correct you and say, mm, I don't hear about that. That's your say, or that settlement privilege, or this is that. Um, and then to just 
try and rejig and, and move along. But it's hard. And this is where, um, if you're going to spend money, maybe this is where you spend money on a lawyer is to get you through a trial or to prep you for a trial, um, prep your questions, prep your argument. This is probably where you, this is the thing. If you're going to a trial, it's, it's the thing, it's the time, it's the big day. Um, this is maybe where you want to spend money because uh, this is where it can get, where it can get hard and the rubber hits the road. Um, costs are something that can be ordered when you have a trial or, or a court application and there's a clear successful party and a clear unsuccessful party, uh, costs can be awarded. And, and the intention of costs is to compensate you for the, for the cost of having to come to court. And even if you're self-represented, um, you can have costs awarded against you. Uh, the courts have told us that it doesn't matter if you're poor or not, you can have costs awarded against you. Um, and there can be costs awarded the other way, even if someone doesn't use a lawyer. So it's um, something to be aware of and something that lawyers will often communicate to you that like, if you aren't reasonable about this, I will be seeking costs against you. That's not the lawyer being mean or litigious. That is, that's part of litigation is that if you have to go to court and, and you took an unreasonable position and, and were unsuccessful, you're probably going to have to pay some, some cost to the other side. So it's something to be aware of and to think about whether you want to push an issue or not. Uh, if it's not likely to succeed, because you may very well be paying out of pocket for that. And if the whole point of not getting a lawyer was to avoid costs, that's not going to, that's not going to bode well for you. Uh, if you end up having to pay for your other side's lawyer in the end, yeah. those are my uh, trial tips that like, again, there's lots more with the trial. I don't know, mm -hmm. um, if either one of you want to throw in some other tips, but I think that those handbooks I referenced earlier will have a lot. If people are actually preparing for trial, that 180 page <laughs> judicial counsel handbook should have some useful tips in those 180 pages, I would think. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go, I'm gonna go get one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, just be organized and, and have speaking notes. I, I know very few lawyers who go in to make anything more than a brief adjournment application or something that don't have speaking notes and don't have, you know, what they're going to say laid out in some way in front of them. What are you here about? A brief summary. What are you asking for? And why do you, you know, why should you get that? Um, so there's no shame in that, um, in having those notes and looking at them when you're, when you're making a presentation to the judge. Um, and that would go, I mean, I guess tenfold for trial, right? It's, it's a long and can be complicated. So you want to be really really organized and really prepared. That's such a good tip. I mean, it, I don't know how much we've talked about your past, Heather, and, and really what you cut your teeth doing. And I mean, Sarah, you were, you guys came from the same place as the family law office where you're in court all the time. All the time, and, yeah. And uh, you want, you still use notes. So, I mean, if Heather and Sarah use notes when they're in court, like you should probably, you should probably use notes. Yeah. There's probably I mean, times where I would have forgotten my own name if I <laughs> hadn't had it written down in front of me. Right. Sometimes things just don't go well that day. You're under stress. You're upset. Like have it written out, have it written down. I, yeah. I always prepare notes. I almost never look at them when I'm actually up there, yeah. but just the, the act of preparing them is incredibly useful. And then if you do have one of those moments where you get off track or you have a blank, it's great to know that you've got you've got that information right there in front of you. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the same for me. When I started off, I was in Onaway, and so I would drive. I had to drive into the courthouse. It was like a forty-five minute, hour-long drive. And so while I was driving, I was like going over my head, like, okay, 
you know, when I'm an articling student, whatever, and they send me to go do something super simple at court, like, you know, uh, consent order or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to introduce myself and like address the judge properly and just go through all these things, you know, and obviously when you're practicing law and you're going to court, yeah, even I don't go to court all the time, but regularly enough where those things don't, I'm not worried about those things anymore. But when you're representing yourself, like those little things, it'd be helpful just to have notes for yourself. Now, I wanted to mention about costs there because you, you talked about, you can get cost award against you. So I, um, I was helping out on a file where it was a self-represented litigant against a municipality. And this file went up to the Supreme Court. It was a, it was a little summer village in Alberta. And, and there was some zoning issue. I can't remember all the details of the issue, but there's like a path that went across the land. And anyways, one of the property owners had a stink about it. He wanted to do something that the village took the position he couldn't or, or I don't even, I don't even, I don't remember all the details, but there were two parties represented by lawyers. There was the summer village and there was a consortium of a bunch of other residents. And then this other guy who was self-represented and he lost got costs awarded against him just was just getting a taste of it. So he was excited, appealed, lost, got costs award against him and then went to the Supreme court and uh, it was not heard. So I don't know if there were costs, but I think there were costs there too. He got a lot of costs that he had to pay and um lucky for him all of the other people besides the summer village were represented by one lawyer so the costs were consolidated somewhat mm. if they had all been represented by different lawyers there would have a whole bunch of costs because there would have been a whole bunch of extra preparation and everything so this guy had a cost award in, in the to the tune of like i don't know ten thousand dollars after all was said and done and he had property in the summer village that they could put a lien on so that he's going to pay those costs. And I don't know that he had a problem with paying. Like, I don't, I'm not suggesting that he was going to try and get out of it or anything like that, but it's real. You play the game of wanting to sue somebody or, or to, to take a principled stance. And if you are not being reasonable, and even if you are being reasonable and you lose, um, costs are part of that. That's part of, that's a really important part of the dynamic of going to court. So just be prepared. It, it can be less common in family law, but certainly not. If you go to trial, it's pretty run of the mill that costs will be awarded to the successful party. Sometimes in family law, it's not a clear win loss. Sometimes it's mixed success, winner. right? Yeah. But oftentimes at a trial, there is an appeal for sure. That's a given. There will be costs. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, um, I was reading a case recently that involved a self rep. Um, and I had briefly been involved in the file. So I knew that the, the self rep was self rep mostly because of mental health issues because they weren't particularly well. Um, but in the end, uh, at the end of the trial, the costs that were awarded against her were reduced from what the other lawyer was asking for, but they were still $70,000 in costs. Now that included um, some expert evidence, uh, practice note eight. And so that's partly why it was so high, but yeah, it was, she's never going to pay them, but she may very well have to claim bankruptcy in order to, to get yeah. out from under that. And um, yeah, so it's not as if it's 
you know, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't, you know, you can't hold me responsible. Like, absolutely, we can. Yeah. You, um, you're, you're taking proactive steps all along the way, um, and there could be cost consequences. And another thing, kind of along with that, about you, you mentioned earlier about judges have to walk this tightrope of accommodating somebody who's representing themselves and without giving them an unfair advantage. And I have an anecdotal experience from that. Again, very early in my career, I was, I did a special chambers hearing, which is just a hearing that's going to take longer than 20 minutes, but it's still not like a full-blown trial. And there's some, for special chambers, there's some specific things you have to do. Like the way you have filing deadlines that are pretty strict and you have to file a brief, which is just like kind of a written summary. And the person that was self-representing didn't do any of those things. And so that was unfair because my client incurred all these legal fees and doing all these things and following the rules. And he just showed up with nothing and was allowed, the judge allowed him to speak and to provide evidence in this hearing, which mm. technically you can't, it has to only be in affidavit evidence. But I think the reason that the judge allowed him to do that was because it didn't matter. <laughs> mm. The client got everything that she asked for. And, and I, I, I think the judge probably knew that's what, how it was going to go, but allowed the self represented litigant to say their piece anyways, and to, to hear what they had to say. Um, but it's, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, so he rolled the dice by not doing anything and just showing up and thought he was going to have a chance to say, and he did actually have a chance to say something, which he didn't, the judge didn't have to even give him that chance, but in the end, it made no difference. So it's, and they got a cost award against him because he lost. And so, yeah, just, if you're listening to this, you're already different than that guy was. That guy wasn't looking <laughs> to any resources about how to represent yourself. And so I'm sure that, you, uh, that our listeners are not going to take that approach. But, you know, from all and of like, our experience, it's a, you know, it's a good idea to get some kind of help somewhere. Sorry, Sarah. Yeah. No, I was interrupting you. Um, it, And really, of course, they're trying. Like, they don't, they provide all the, like all those deadlines would have been provided to that person. It would have been sent in an email. It, there would have been the attached document. And so people really, um, need to pay attention to the information that is provided to them. That being said, sometimes I feel as a lawyer that I do not know what's going on at court these days. Cause they make changes all the time. And I'm like looking at what the latest updates are. And I'm, especially during the pandemic, a lot of times we were like, how do I even get this thing that I used to be able to get this way? Now it's different. And if we as lawyers have a hard time, I'm so sympathetic to self reps who this isn't there. They're also trying to live their life and do their job and, and then figure this, figure this out as well. And so it can be really hard though. The, the court does try, does try to do their best, does try to get information out. The court's website is pretty comprehensive. It takes some time sometimes to navigate, um, but it's there. The information is there. And yeah. so self reps do need to put the effort in um, and pay attention to, to what's being provided to them. So again, that back to that, like ignoring information generally doesn't, doesn't bode well. Kim, you're there. You've heard us say all these words, some of them lawyer legalese words as well. Do you have any questions or any, uh, any thoughts or any, any input about all this that we've just been talking about? 
I think this episode is going to be well watched because in the financial services, it's oftentimes self reps who are reaching out for help with financial disclosure. But the one thing I think is important to mention is that oftentimes when people are reaching out for help with the numbers, they're, they're trying to slide in legal advice and and for anybody who has any sort of divorce credentials in the financial services, they know not to give legal advice. But I think there's a lot of people in my line of work who might not even understand what legal advice truly is. So I think a cautionary tale for people reaching out to uh, financial planners, um, they are not allowed to give you legal advice. They're probably going to give you the wrong answer. They shouldn't be doing it. Um, just, just maybe just stay away from trying to get any little tips and tricks that way. They are happy to provide information about gathering your assets and your debts and uh, giving you a general sense of the process that, that lawyers are looking for. Um, but I think there can be some issues and, and cautionary tales in there. <laughs> so that was that's something that I think is important to mention as people do self-rep maybe more and more and are just looking for that financial piece that that financial professional cannot and should not be giving any sort of type of legal advice. And, and it raises a good point that if you're, if you're trying to get that free legal advice from, from the unqualified person, right. From the legal advisor or from the financial advisor, from, from the sister who went through a divorce from the person online who says, this is my story and this is my advice. It's probably going to be bad advice, right? Like, and, and if it's good, you just really lucked out, right? And so, and that bad advice can lead to cost awards against you. It doesn't, so that doesn't save you any money in the end, right? It can lead to ongoing litigation that wasn't worth it. And again, costs you time and stress. And so and it sort of feels like, well, of course the lawyer is plugging lawyers, <laughs> but I, we do provide a valuable service. Uh, I like, I like to think, um, and but we can, you can do it in a cost-effective way. So if it's just even getting that, that one consult, that one coaching session, the two coaching sessions, whatever it is, paying the lawyer for the thing that you need to be paid for, get the good advice, the quality advice, so that you're not then set down the path, but from the bad free advice. Absolutely. Here, here, Sarah. <laughs> hey, lawyers. <laughs> yeah, but this, I, I agree, Kim. I think this has been a great episode. And a lot of it has been just Sarah, just, just spilling out all of these great informa information. And um, she covered a lot. So we covered, you know, if you're the difference between a voluntary or non-voluntarily self-represented and how that's different. The, uh, you know, settlement meetings, working with a lawyer on the other side of a file, legal research, coaching and limited scope services, what a McKenzie friend is and how that can help you in court, mental health, the handbooks and other resources for self-represented litigants. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of really good stuff. So I hope that, uh, um, people are recognized the value they're getting here. They're getting some free, not legal advice, <laughs> but advice about legal advice. <laughs> some serious informational gold here. I yeah. think in this episode. Agreed. Yeah. So thanks so much for coming on again, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. And, um, we, we know there's another great topic you want to talk about, and we'd love to have you back on to talk about it. So 
look forward to that. Um, before we say goodbye, and this is completely off topic, but Sarah, I think you and I might be wearing the same earrings or very close to the same earrings. How weird is that? We are. I was thinking, oh, I put on, last time I was on, I wore huge earrings and I thought, well, I'll wear more modest earrings this time. But then my, my headphones cover them mostly, but not, a, you obviously saw them. That's fun. Isn't that I forget they exactly the same? I think so. They really look like they're identical. Are those yeah. like, were those, was that part of like um <laughs> the latitude set. Of latitude law? <laughs> yeah. This was my uh never mind, I was gonna make a joke, but I, <laughs> I was gonna say this was my tenure present from legal aid, mm. but no, I'm joking. I, I didn't quite make it I didn't quite make it to ten years, but I will tell you that the the ten year gifts and the five year gifts were not not amazing. <laughs> you, you can feel free to edit that out if that's The reward was the experience and yes. the people that we yeah. worked with yes. and for. So yes. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was very cute. We we're earring twinsies today. So always Too lovely funny. to see you, Sarah. I can't wait to have you on again. And um, ditto for you, Evan and Kim. Take yes. care. See ya. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because of he who told.